Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. My way or the policy, um, that, that's a slant rhyme. Uh, we poets call that. No, I, I know. So it's, yeah, it would sound better if it's my way or the highway sounds better, I will admit. But I want to try to get at a good question today. And that is, yes, we do these aspirations of First Unitarian Society. Our second one, as I read today, is to make the change we need for a more just, compassionate, and peaceful world. So, you know, yeah, just, compassionate, peaceful, that's, that's asking a lot of this particular world and our particular reality, isn't it? But we commit ourselves to continue working on it. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. If we but know what to do with it. That's always the good question, isn't it? What time is it, and what can we do now? In order to tie our theme of the month, which is resistance, thanks for digging up through the, the songbook there. That's great. Thanks, choir, for be, being willing to sing those songs. Resistance is our theme of the month, and I want to think about how do we do this resistance in the context of our aspirations. And I want to start with a consideration of what a hero even is. And I will proceed from there to a consideration of the challenges from times past. And I hope I'll finish today with uh, some suggestions and ideas. Well, what is a hero? I'm going to start in what might appear to be an odd spot, but you can vicariously experience what it's like to be in my mind, right? <laughs> This is an album cover from 1968. Some of you jazz aficionados know it well. This is Thelonious Monk's recording of the album Underground, an incredibly complex photo if you begin to look at it, and it grows more complex the longer that you look at it. There's just a lot going on. All right, so here's your music trivia of the day. Yes, I used to be a disc jockey. The album cover of the Bob Dylan album, Basement Tapes, is an homage to Theolonius Monk's album. You may or may not have noticed that in the record store uh, sometime or other. It's an interesting story as to why that is the case. Monk's album cover is an homage to Baroness Kathleen Annie Pon Ponica de Koningswater, nay Rothschild, I'm glad I didn't have to, uh, to uh, pronounce her name every day, but that Rothschild in there is very important. Uh, she was, yes, very, very wealthy, and she also loved jazz, and she began to promote Monk's work uh, before he was uh, even known, and that's why he did the album cover uh, for this. The photo is of the underground because you can see there on her collar the military decoration. Uh, she was a lieutenant in the Free French Army. 
The Baroness, known as Nika, was a war hero of the French Resistance, and that's why the World War II era weapons and technology is in the photo. Now, Baroness Nika was without question a hero. Despite her social status, wealth, she was totally insulated and protected, but instead of choosing that life, she chose to put her life on the line fighting the Nazis over and over again. And then after the war, she used her wealth and fame to promote young jazz artists such as Thelonious Monk, who parenthetically, I think, has the coolest name of just about anybody. D does anyone know Thelonious Monk's middle name? Sphere, you got it, Sphere. Sphere, Thelonious Sphere Monk. Now, those are cool parents. That, and that's pre-hippie days, so those are cool, those are pretty cool. Uh, so, sphere, yes. Uh, Thelonious Sphere Monk, uh, so that's, that gets my vote for the coolest name ever. I may have to change my name. But back to Baroness Nika, she was a hero. There is no doubt about it. We can talk about Thelonious and Bob Dylan as heroes as, uh, of other sorts, and that's kind of where I want to go with this consideration of the idea of hero. Um, because there are different kinds of them, aren't there? I mean, militaries rank heroes according to what kind of medals they get. There are all kinds of, of different ways of doing it. So what does the word hero even mean? Well, strangely enough, it comes to us from the Greek with almost no alteration whatsoever. You could recognize it in the Greek. And it means, hmm... Demigod. Hmm. Now that's the original meaning, and you notice also that it is of uncertain origin. This word just kind of appears, and it just continues to kind of hang out. But in the Greek understanding, it was a demigod. That is a person, of course, who is half person and half god. Not like Beyonce, just really big and famous, but rather someone who is actually god-like. Part God, you know, as in flying and walking on water and uh, supernatural sorts of things like that. Now, the Romans embraced this Greek idea of half God, half human, the demigod hero. And that's why the emperors were declared to be gods. And this concept is most likely the origin of the Christian concept of the godlike human named Jesus. Part human, part God. The interesting thing there is that the concept of living demigods did not exist in the Hebrew tradition at that time. Now, if you go back into Genesis, you do meet some demigods, but they were really extraordinarily terrible people, and God wiped them out with Noah's flood. So you see there's, there's an odd understanding and a disjunct between what the Hebrews were thinking and uh, what the Romans were thinking of that time. Well, hero, thanks to our archive committee, we've got, raise your hand, archive committee is Wendy here as well. We've got three very dedicated, very, very dedicated uh, archive committee members, and they've been digging around in our really cool archive. And for today at noon, they have dug up John Dietrich's address. He called them addresses, as I call mine talks. You know, we humanists can't do sermons, right? So there you go. But in, this is from January of 1936, and it's called The Passing of Free Speech. 
Now, nowadays, uh, we look back on those days uh, in the 20s and 30s. We, we know what happened. We, we know our history. Uh, do notice that the uh, building used to be at 1526 Harmon Place. That was the second location uh, for buildings. This is the third building for First Unitarian Society. So we used to be a little closer to Loring Park over there. In his address, The Passing of Free Speech, Dietrich reports that he's just returned Oh, for the days you could do that sort of thing. Two months in Europe he had just spent, sailing over, sailing back. And two months in specifically Italy and Germany in 1935. All right? Well, springtime in Italy for El Duce, right? And springtime in Germany for Hitler. And when I reflect on that world situation in those mid-1930s, I always think of Charlie Chaplin's masterpiece, Modern Times, that great movie. If you haven't seen it, you really ought to, because I think he really caught the spirit of the age, made in 1935, released in 1936. Now, Chaplin's movie begins with a scene of a herd of sheep then cuts to workers getting off the subway. It's not very subtle what he's saying there, right? <laughs> Chaplin was good at not being subtle sometimes. Chaplin plays a factory worker who is innocent of his ex exploitation. You see how much he enjoys his job as he's being ground through the gears of the factory. He's just a happy working guy. The next slide is of the feeding machine. Some of you know this is a very famous uh, way of looking at how technology works. Uh, yes, watch it. You can watch just that section on YouTube. But the idea here is that human beings are being nailed down into uh, the mechanics, the, uh, the cogs and wheels of uh, the factory life. And the exploitation just won't stop. Hilarity, of course, ensues with the, with the feeding machine, as you might know. Now, the movie poster from the time sums up graphically what people were feeling about what was happening in our societies. We humans are condemned by these modern times to make a mad dash for freedom across the cogs of the machines, it's saying. And... John Dietrich framed the question in that address you're going to be looking at today this way. He said, the bigger and more complicated the machine grows, the more insignificant a cog in it does the individual become. Where it will end, none of us can see. Now, in the plot of modern times, Chaplin's character accidentally becomes a leader of the socialist workers' uh, revolt, right? Uh, that's one way out of the mechanization of humanity, uh, he was saying. But Dietrich saw another threat when he toured Europe there in the mid-1930s. Il Duce was at the height of his power in Italy. Yeah, you can just kind of see. And there's, uh, yeah, there's good old Adolf there, uh, looking real good in the mid-30s. Uh, yeah, right? Uh, springtime for Hitler, and uh, that's right before his Nuremberg speech. Yeah, says the, the photo there. And then I love Nazi propaganda. Sometime you got nothing else to do. Just start looking online at Nazi propaganda. Uh, it's uh, brilliant stuff. We have this uh, Easter card here with this sweet little blonde girl holding her bunny and giving the Hitler salute as she anticipates her Easter basket complete with an egg with a swastika. So, yeah, springtime for Hitler in Germany. 
Today we know how that story ended, but in 1936, when uh, Dietrich was standing before the congregation, no one knew what was going to happen next. He wrote, the bigger and more complicated the machine grows, the more insignificant a cog does the individual become. And then he adds, unless those of us who still believe in free speech stand by our principles, there is no question about where it will end, end quote. In other words, we're doomed to become cogs in nationalist machines that controlled everything from our daily schedules to our eating habits and our very lives. Mass culture was a new concept in the mid-1930s. Liberals had thought that given real democracy, the people, the people, would show their deep and abiding compassion and vote in good things. But the populism that gave rise to a Hitler and a Mussolini did not appear to be the type that the liberals had been dreaming of, shall we say. There was a deep darkness to it. Uh, Dietrich did understand German. He grew up in a German-speaking home, so he knew what was going on quite well. Did the world of mass work and mass media mean that a masterful demagogue could convince citizens to surrender their freedoms? Well, it certainly did appear so. People were choosing security over freedom. And Dietrich warned, an occasional person gladly tolerates ideas hostile to his own, but most of us, Dietrich said, are active or passive advocates of suppression. Actually, most of us like some ideas suppressed, and that is a dangerous thing. As it had with Charlie Chaplin, it had dawned on John Dietrich that modern times would be about the mass. After all, Charlie Chaplin went from a basement vaudeville nightclub, stinking of nicotine and urine, right, to international stardom. And Dietrich went from a country uh, a church house uh, to the pulpit in downtown Minneapolis uh, to speaking to thousands in the theaters uh, every uh, Sunday and also on the radio, and he had a national reputation. Dietrich framed this change this way. He said, must the individual merge all rights and interests in the welfare of the group or institution, or should the group or institution protect and preserve the rights and interests of the individual? Very basic, good liberal ideas. What's more important, the individual or the collective? And where do we get, how do we balance those particular tensions? As was becoming obvious in the mid-1930s, the greatest danger to shared democratic government is the individual who is so individual that they join a mass movement led by a demagogue who preaches individual freedom while controlling the mob as a mass. Yeah, it never stops, does it? Now remember that demagogue and democracy both contain the same Greek root word demos, the people, demos. And there you have the exact problem with demos. You have the bright side, yep, but also there is a dark side to it. What's the difference between demosocracy and mob rule? Dietrich thought about what was going on in Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany, and he realized the difference between those nations and the US in 1936 and the difference was free speech. The first thing fascist regimes do is shut down all the avenues 
of free speech. The sequence is easy to see. A tyrant uses free speech to convince large numbers of people about something, and then that tyrant shuts down free speech. Which brings me to why First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis needs to be here, I believe. It's our mission, it's our vision, it's our values. So let's look and see how others see us. This is the wiki page uh, for First Unitarian Society, at the top of it anyway. It says that we are a non-theistic humanist co community. How about that? Yes, that is how we identify. It tells us where we are and, of course, about John Dietrich, the father of religious humanism. I want to look at the history section here for a moment. In the 1870s, the Minneapolis chapter of the National Liberal League, and many of you know I've talked a lot about that, of the National Liberal League, they began to discuss the ideas of geologist Charles Lyell and naturalist Charles Darwin. Upon hearing visiting Unitarian minister Henry Martin Simmons, 1841-1905 lecture, 18 members of the Liberal League voted to incorporate as a Unitarian congregation uh, November 18, 1881, so that Simmons would come. He said, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'd love to lecture on Darwin, but you got to be a church first. So, so, and, and that's a very interesting way for a church to develop, if you stop to think about it. They were reading Darwin, right? And they were, were resisting the Comstock laws in the National Liberal League. National Liberal League was, was formed to fight, and I'll get back to that. Now, the article was, was of incorporation defined the society's purpose, and I've mentioned this several times, people without regard to theological differences. So we're not going to talk about theological differences, right? You can, you can be different. You can bring elephants aloud in this club, right? That's, that's not, not a problem. Mutual helpfulness is what we're here for. We're for, here for intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. Now, a little bit later, I don't know if you can see it on the slide, but it mentions a couple of things that they uh, did early on. One was to convince the Minnesota National Guard to pull out of the uh, Philippines. Uh, the National Guard had been sent in an invasion of the Philippines. Uh, this congregation uh, joined together to protest that. Uh, it's been a long time ago. Um, very few people even know about the Philippine invasion these days, but it was one of the, the moments when America began to be uh, consider itself as an empire, and uh, the people here were not going to have that, and so they resisted and got the National Guard to withdraw from the invasion. And, you know, if you're from Minneapolis, some of, some of you may be alive because the folks brought those guys home before they got killed. Who knows? But that's the kind of thing we've been doing for a very long time. Now, I admit it, I, I, I do get too into history, but, uh, you know, a little bit. I admit it, yeah. But uh, the, the, the Liberal League was against what you're seeing on our screen. This is a part of the Comstock laws, mailing obscene or crime inciting matter. Every article or thing designed, adopted, or intended for producing abortion or for any indecent or immoral use, and every article, instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing which is advertised or described in a manner calculated to lead another to use or apply it for producing abortion or for any indecent or immoral purpose. And uh, it, the Comstock laws are full, are full of the word indecent. <laughs> without ever saying quite what it is, and that is, of course, why these laws were so dangerous. They were dangerous because uh, it was indecent to tell women about, uh, about free thought, about agnosticism, 
Uh, so that was a pornography. So we can stop it. And people were jailed for that reason. And you can see why uh, the people here might think the Liberal League was uh, a good idea to fight the Comstock laws. Now, this began in the 1870s. But guess what? Uh, some judge in Texas, this is still in force. We, we forget these things, uh, that uh, in the early 1960s, many of the Comstock laws were, were kind of untangled, especially about novels, fiction, and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, that was the early 60s, and since that time, very little has been done with, with these particular laws. So they got chopped, uh, chipped away, but they are still there, as is the law about eugenics, uh, a Supreme Court decision. These things are all there waiting to be dug up by people who think it's a really good idea. So every article, every, every incident, you see the problem. So who's a hero? Well, you and your forebears here were heroes fighting that kind of stuff. We're part of a chain of people stretching back through the years, all the way back to the 1870s, who have insisted that that kind of stuff is not about freedom. Are we perfect? Well, of course not. But the thing to look at in the terms of our history of progressivism is that we've been right more often than we've been wrong. Uh, so that's a pretty good track record when you're talking about, about 150 years. So our forebears here at FUS were heroes. You are heroes of the resistance and you must keep fighting it because actually it's a series of resistances, right? We, there's this one and then there's another one and how many have there been in our lifetimes? You and me were the willing inheritors of that kind of resistance because Emerson was right. This time, like all times, is a very good one if you know what to do with it. What is the most effective way to achieve our second aspiration, well, that's the problem, isn't it? All the, all the ways are the right way. We have to do all of them. Everybody wishes there were a magic wand to fix these injustices. Sometimes getting out in the street and marching is just what we need to do. And other times we have to sit at that darn Capitol and it feels like you're just watching paint dry, doesn't it? <laughs> the rule of law, however, is frustrating and slow, but it's a very good idea. The track record of this congregation is clear. If justice means getting out in the street, we will do that. If it means going to the Capitol, we will do that. Because Dietrich said a long time ago, quote, unless those of us who still believe in free speech stand by our principles, there is no question where it will end, end quote. We, Heroes, all of you, believe in free speech. We believe in our principles. And we invite everyone to join us in the underground, dancing on those cogs and wheels because the machinery of oppression is always there. But we want to share, as the first manifesto said, a shared life in a shared world for everyone. Thank you, heroes.
Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.